Welcome action fans, and thanks for joining us for another edition of All 90s Action All The Time. I'm your host Scott Murphy, and just in case you haven't heard, this year we are returning as a monthly podcast, and throughout the year we will be looking at the films of 1993. We kick off this exploration of 1993 with our second annual edition of January. Now, our man Jackie starred in a few movies in 1993, including City Hunter, Crime Story, and Super Cop 2. Although his role in Super Cop 2 is just really a cameo, so we ruled that one out, leaving just Crime Story and City Hunter. In the end, I went with the latter, as despite Crime Story having much better reviews, I remember City Hunter being kind of dumb fun when I saw it as a kid and had an urge to rewatch it. Hopefully a decision that my guests won't hate me for. Speaking of which, I should introduce my guest right now. And the guest is, once again, you'll remember him from last month. He's a reviewer. He's a podcaster. He's a DTV connoisseur himself. It's Mr. Matt Poirier. Hi, Matt. Hi, Scott. Thank you for having me on it. And no, I'm not upset. I think... Um... Yes, that uh, City Hunter might not be as good as as it's the other the um what was the crime story that you mentioned crime story the, the, uh, crime story it might not be as good as as you know police story but that was the mid eighties um yes yeah, not quite as good as crime story but it's got two of my favorites Gary Daniels and Richard Norton in it plus so 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 that always kind of mitigates it for me so Just quickly, we'll do the background details on today's film. So today's film was released on the 14th of January, 1993. It was written and directed by Wong Jing, who also wrote and produced Naked Killer and directed High Risk, which is a movie we'll probably mention in a little while. And it was based on the popular Japanese manga of the same name. Critically, it is currently sitting on a Actually, pretty respectable 6.3 out of 10 on IMDb, 50% on Rotten Tomatoes based on eight reviews. It doesn't have a Metacritic score, 
It has a 3.1 on letterbox. And finally, box office wise, it made roughly $14 million at the box office. I'm not sure how that good that is, though, because I couldn't find the budget information. So it probably did all right. I can't imagine it being more. It's, it's, I'm sure it made its money back, more than its money back. I can't imagine it being $14 million. I imagine the, the budget was less than that. So. Yeah, I mean, it was it, a good chunk of the film. It takes place in one location, and usually those kinds of movies don't don't end up costing as much. And yeah, I mean, like even though it technically takes place on a cruise ship, and we get an exterior shot of a cruise ship, it's, it's basically it was all filmed on a Shaw Brothers studio lot. That that whole cruise ship interior. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Now, before we get into this film, have you seen this film before? Yes. So actually, I, I it was only about a year or two ago that I first saw it, though, because I think it was last summer. Or it was it, oh, no, now it's 2020 now. I can't believe it was already it was 2020 when I guess what I saw this. I was getting ready to do my thousandth post on the site, and at that time, I was trying to figure out who to celebrate. You know, as I was doing that, and we had finally just gotten a hold of Gary Daniels' Secret of King Mahi's Island, which is like one of the first two films he ever did, and it was. Oh, really difficult to find. I think it was um, Simon Miller of Explosive Action who found it, a, v- a Japanese VHS rip of it. And so we were all excited to have that. So I thought, okay, I'm going to review that and sort of celebrate Daniels' career on, on the site. And I decided to do a letterbox list of as many of his movies as I could. So I kind of tried to consume as many as I could to have the, the list be as, as, um, as accurate as possible to kind of say, okay, I watched this one or didn't watch that one. So that's why I watched City Hunter then. I still hadn't reviewed it for the site yet, but I did watch it again for this because it had been, I think a couple of years was, was long enough that I, I needed to watch it again to be able to discuss it. But that was when I first saw it. So yeah, probably like um, spring of 2020. Wow. Okay. Okay. So it's rather fresh in your, your memory as opposed to, to my memory, which is just, I don't know when I must have saw this. I presume, I think it was maybe the, the late 90s. Because like I became like a Jackie Chan fan in the kind of mid, mid to late 90s. I think I, I saw like Rumble in the Bronx a couple of years after it came out. I'm pretty sure I saw it before Russia. So I think it must have been like 97 or something. And then like, and then I just like bought a whole lot of uh, Jackie Chan films and watched a whole lot of Jackie Chan films after that point and became... I was really big into him in the late 90s, early 2000s. I'm still a big fan now, but um, yeah, so I think it was probably back then. So I, and City Hunter is not one that was on was on repeat. So like, um, I think I've only really seen it once before. And so it's a long time ago. So I only had very vague memories of it. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's, it had been two years for me and I still kind of realized I, when I watched it again um, for, for this episode, I realized like I had forgotten a good amount of it as well, which we'll probably talk about as we get in on it. So um, it was good that I watched it too, even though it had only been a couple of years. First of all, I, before we properly get in on it, I don't know if it's just me because I, I just like, martial art films and always have since I, since I was a kid. There's something that gives me great joy every time I see that Golden Harvest logo. Yeah, it's one of the most... So, so I was introduced to those films um, younger. I had some, some friends up the street who were started getting like Bruce Lee movies, like, you know, Chinese Connection, yeah. things like that. And I remember the first time I saw that logo, I didn't really know what I was in for in, in watching those movies. 
But then, yeah, once you the, the martial arts start and you start, it, you, you see something that's very different from sort of the Western action cinematic tradition. And I, I agree with you that that Golden Harvest logo, when I saw it for this movie, I was like, it kind of, yeah, it gives you kind of a, a, like a, a very, like almost like a comfort food feeling. Yes. I think like it is a comfort food feeling. I think it's like that thing of like being a kid and it being related to to being a kid or, or or something or just like that kind of nostalgia feeling because like from a very young age I was into like Bruce Lee films and stuff like that and watched a lot of Golden Harvest stuff and and there's certain other you know it's like seeing the it's like seeing the the Canon logo or the New World Pictures logo you know it just there's certain things that are just like ah <laughs> yeah. yeah the Canon might be the best the best comp also i guess for horror movies new line here in in, in america i know new line yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah you see those logos come in and they, the way they kind of put together and it's funny because nowadays it's like you watch a, a directed video or even just like a normal release and you just see tons of these different like like little like little animations for whatever you know it's like five or six different companies that are involved with the movie and i think that's another piece of it too is that when you just see golden harvest or you just see canon it, it also sort of brings you back to a kind of a simpler time when it came to movies. That's true. When movies were generally made by like one production company as to like you say, unless it's like a big Disney movie or or like a big one of the big studios, Universal, Warner Brothers, whatever, then usually you're getting like five or six of those idents because like pretty much every indie production now has is made by like, yeah, like half a dozen production companies. Right. Yeah, exactly. So yeah, that's another piece too, where it's like, you know, I fired up this movie and I just got one opening and then we were done. Um, Cause I, I was watching some Bruce Willis movies recently with um, Ty from uh, uh, like uh, come up as reviews podcast. And that was like, those, there was like, it was like five or six. And then they would also open the movie by listing the five or six, you know, they each get their own credit as well. So yeah, when you know it's just Golden Harvest, it does. I think it brings back that, evokes those memories of, you know, just as a kid, you know, getting something from the video store and bringing it home. Yeah. Let's get into the movie proper. So how did you feel about, the, you know, the the film you were getting into? You, you We get this opening scene. It's very comic booky. Ba- basically get Jackie having like a monologue to camera explaining who his character is and the backstory of how he's got his female assistant Corey, Corey, I think uh, I'm trying. Hopefully, there's going to be some mispronunciations during the course of this episode, dear listener, and you're just going to have to apologize. I'm just going to have to apologize in advance for that. But yes, so and we discovered like the the death of his partner. Yeah, what was your opinions on that kind of opening scene and just how uh, very comic booky and, you know, because we get like a manga montage in front of that as well. Yeah, it was definitely a a sign that I was watching something different, right? That this was going to be, you know, it's probably, like you said, it's going to probably be more comic. There's probably going to be more comic elements there. So there was definitely that, that sense that I was getting into something different. And the other thing too that was interesting that I was trying to sort of parse like how I was going to feel about it is the fact that he's, it's it's the best friend's sister, right, that he's taking care of. Yeah. And it's like, oh, now the best friend's sister is older and he has a thing for her. And that was kind of awkward the way that they kind of like, oh, you know, sisters grow up really fast or something like that. And it was kind of like, was, I don't know if creepy is the right word. I mean, it, it, it could have been worse, but it was just like, yeah, it was kind of all kind of awkward there, like between the friend dying and then like, oh, my friend's dead. And now I've got his, his sister here and all that kind of stuff. <laughs> Yes, and like the friend's dying wish is that he he, he never like b- 
because like the friend knows that our hero Rio is is a bit of a is a bit of a perv. He's a bit of a creep, <laughs> and he he flirts with anything that moves. And so he's like, don't don't try it on with my sister. That's my last dying wish. Don't try it on with my sister. And like you say, it is a bit awkward and a bit. It's it's not super sleazy, but it's just a bit awkward and a little bit creepy because, like, like you say, basically he's holding hands with a little girl coming down a spiral staircase, and she gets older as the as they walk down the spiral staircase. And by the time they come out the door, she's in like her early twenties, and it's just like, and then he kind of gives her like again a sleazy look or whatever, and it's just like, yeah, but you've basically raised this girl like. exactly and i think that's one of the things too is it kind of it tells us kind of early on too that like jackie chen's character is not going to be kind of your standard like i don't know it's hard to know if if this was there's a cultural difference here or something like that but it felt like he was not going to be a hero that you could always root for that you're always going to side with i guess yeah i guess that's an interesting thing that like in terms of cultural differences because I think that even though this, yeah, that I, <laughs> this kind of pushes it, but <laughs> the the anti-hero thing that you know the the, the kind of cool anti-hero that you would get in that you would get kind of in like Tarantino films and stuff like that. That that I guess that didn't really come in American cinema until the likes of Tarantino, where it's much more common in European cinema and in Asian cinema. That kind of like cool anti-hero of like, yeah, he's a bit of a creep, but also he's kind of cool. Right. Yeah, exactly. Like in, in American cinema, it was, I mean, you, the Punisher was kind of his, his own thing, right? That was sort yeah. of there. And I think part of the reason why they didn't use him in as many things, like, you know, he had the adaptation with, with Dolph Lundgren, but it was part of that was like, they didn't know how to use him properly because, you know, it's it's different when it's like, Schwarzenegger, who's like, you know, or, or Stallone, right, and Rambo, where it's like they're completely just like, yeah, they're they're bad. They can, you know, take everybody down, but they never do anything. Like, like you would never see Schwarzenegger in Commando, like hitting on multiple women and you know in, insulting other women or anything like that. Like, he wouldn't be doing that kind of thing in that role. Yeah, and I, I think like there's a certain thing of like it generally in American cinema. I think that. If you're like an anti-hero, you can't be fun. Like right, right. I think like in in Asian cinema and European cinema, there's a lot of like anti-heroes who are fun characters. Where in American cinema, if you're an anti-hero, you have to be not fun. You have to be dirty Harry, you have to be Cobra, you have to be something like that. You have to be very much humorless, totally the opposite of fun. Right. Yeah, complete cop on the edge, generally doesn't joke. And yeah, five o'clock shadow smoking cigarettes you know that kind of thing yeah i mean i think you're right clint eastwood is probably the best example of that sort of you know you remember or or, you know chuck norris also kind of fits that when i think of like his 70s and early 80s stuff it was he 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 really didn't have a lot of personality and i think it is also something that's kind of hurt the modern kind of direct-to-video thing because now as they've tried to transition actors who don't normally do that kind of thing that do maybe comedies or, or or romantic movies and, and try to have them act in these Bruce Willis movies. 
it's just like, okay, put on a beard and grimace. That's, that's what you need to do. And you're mm-hmm. right. Like we, we need to, you know, I think of, you know, some of the, the actors that came from Europe, like, like Dolph Lundgren or Jean-Claude Van Damme, who did inject more personality into their heroes. So we get the kind of more, I, I think before we get into the, the rest of the plot in the film, and to be, to be fair, listener, um, there really isn't that much plot. It's basically like a kind of diehard scenario with terrorists on a boat. This film is very much doesn't really have a plot. It's more of a collection of action comedy sketches that uh, kind of stitched together in, in, a, in a weird and sometimes interesting ways. But before we get into the kind of the, the, the plot of the movie, I did want to talk a little bit about what did you think of the score of the film? Because as much as I like some of the, the kookiness of the film, the fact that the score was relentlessly dialed up to 11 on cookie sometimes did great yeah it, it's it's there was a sense and again i don't know if this is a cultural thing where versus like you know hong kong comedy versus you know western style comedies but you're right it, it felt like it was too much it felt like they there were moments where they could have like you said dialed it back on the on the kooky i think there was a lot with jackie chen too where it was like there are moments where you're like come on let's just get on with it and just kind of you know ha- have something yeah you know, move, move the plot along or something like that and let's not do so much goofy here and and there was a sense that almost like they didn't know when to to dial it back. Yeah, and to be fair, like I'm genuinely a big fan of of Goofy. You know, like I've talked before on the podcast about like my favorite types of action, my least favorite types of action. My favorite types of action tend to be what I would call absurdist action films, whether that's intentionally absurdist, like a like John Woo or Paul Verhoeven movies. Or unintentionally absurdist, like Golden Era, Steven Seagal, you know, things like that. Things, things, things that are like over the top, you know, bizarre. Th- these are the kind of things that are my my favorites, you know. And, and um, yes, and and then on the opposite end of the scale, uh, we kind of touched on it a little bit. But kind of my least favorites is what I would call humorless growl fests. You know, like like taking law-abiding citizen cobra. You know these these things. These are kind of things. You know, like the most recent Rambo. Even though I do like some of the Rambo movies, things like that. They they do nothing for me. So I mean, this is kind of in my wheelhouse, but it pushes it so far that like even I'm like, yeah, yeah, you could. You, it doesn't need to be this many cartoon sound effects. <laughs> yeah, well, that's the thing, right? I think that's how I am too. Like I have. I would much prefer this, this kind of funny thing, like you said, to like a Taken or something like that, where the movie is just taking itself way too seriously. And, and that, that's the key. I guess when you, when, you, when, it, when you go in this sort of this goofy direction, it is a matter of like, yeah, wh- wh- when is it too much, I guess? And, um, and I, I was trying to think of like what maybe a good comp would be to this one that would like, you know, like, I mean, I think of Commando is one that really definitely has, plays up the, the kitsch enough in a yeah. way. Yeah, we think of that. That's probably one I think of that we think of traditionally as being one of the best because it does kind of, you know, the, you know, like, you know, all the great one liners where it's not, you know, you, you know, it's not taking itself too seriously when it has those hilarious one liners. And, you know, just like, okay, you know, Schwarzenegger's going to raid the tool shed when he's fighting the baddie, you know, and, you know, going to take down Bennett at the end. I think that, you know, it, it, it works. City Hunter, I think, has enough of that goofiness, but. Yeah, you're right. There's a point where you, like you said, the, the the cartoon sound effects and things like that, where it's like, you know, sometimes it it, it overdoes it, and you're 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 hearing it too much or you're seeing it too much, and 
there is a point where it's like, okay, yeah, can we, yeah, let's, let, we, we saw this happen before. Let's, let's do something else or something. And you know, in terms of comparisons, like, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of Jackie Chan films that, that do this really well, mix the kind of absurdity and the kind of over the top comedy with great action. But I think like this just skews too far kind of one way in terms, in terms of the goofiness, even though there, we will get to some stuff that is some of the goofiest stuff actually does work. And, and we, we will, we will get to some of that stuff, but I do feel like for all its goofiness, the, the movie does take a little while to kind of get going before we're kind of on the cruise ship. We do feel like we're kind of, spinning our wheels a bit and we have like the kind of absurd thing that um his assistant can't wake him up and he's in this dream where he's surrounded by all these beautiful women in a swimming pool and and that that kind of drags on for quite a while and the only in the kind of opening kind of 25 minutes the only kind of really good action sequence we get is a skateboard chase which is which is fun but yeah, how did you feel about that kind of opening kind of 25 minutes before we kind of get onto the boat and the, like the, the, the plot, quote-unquote, starts kind of getting into action? Yeah, I think that might be the best example maybe of the goofiness going too far. It's the whole like she's trying to wake him up and he's like having this dream about being in a pool, being surrounded by women and all of that. And I think that's where you're like, okay, there, there's a point where we could have stopped this and you know moved it along or something. But the fact that she has to like, strap him to the top of the car and 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 drive to the the to the the meeting and and all of that uh yeah i think like you said it 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 it, it was um a good amount of padding um i guess i guess in a way it's it's actually because he's 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 on the top of a car that's driving and 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 that's so. that's some action but but you're right when you think of you usually when i think of hong kong movies um or even when i think of just great action movies in general there's usually some kind of nice action sequence to start the film off with just to kind of get us into it. And like you said, this, we, we get, I think that that skateboard thing would be great at the very beginning. I think it would have worked as enough of an action thing to get us into it, but it took us some time to get there. I mean, like, yeah, I guess like that kind of part of the film, uh, we do see little references in that kind of early part. We do see little references to the, to the manga. Cause I, I read a little bit about the, you know, kind of what happens in the manga and apparently in the manga like when Rio does any sort of kind of pervy behavior and his assistant <laughs> Kaori hits him with a big hammer and we do get like a dream <laughs> sequence of her doing that so, so that's a, a clear reference to to the the manga but yeah I think there's there's not a, a huge amount that needs to be talked about or broken down in that kind of opening part <laughs> of the movie apart from we do get into the thing with the the beautiful ladies in the pool. I guess we'll get into more of that of the kind of relentless perviness of this film. Right, exactly. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes, which we'll, we'll we we shall discuss further. But then we get this again. Some of the car, some of the, the the characters in the movie are so cartoonish. You're just like I've. I don't know why this character is necessarily here or what they bring to the table. I'm one of those characters, Curry's cousin, uh, mm-hmm. who we're introduced in a scene that he is also hitting on her. So because <laughs> every man in this film is a disgusting perv. And <laughs> and then he like just like randomly drops his trousers twice. 
and it's supposed to it's played as if it's the funniest gag in the world and you're just kind of like i don't get it like why why are we supposed to find this so ridiculously funny? right she's like he, he's like hitting on her and saying like you need to forget uh Ryu, you've got to you know you should hook up with me and then yeah her pants fall his pants fall down and she's like you, you know pull up your you know pull up your trousers and then then she walks away and then we get some of like i guess the crew on the ship or whatever or or no it was maybe it was some of the baddies that were getting i can't remember some, some people that are walking behind him it's like it just they fall down again and there were there were a few gags like that that happened in the movie where i was like what what are we you know like, what, 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 who came up with that idea <laughs> oh, yeah it just seems so ridiculous and yes so that is where we get introduced to our bodies because the cousin, like, he uh, ends up having, like, a conversation with Richard Norton's character, Donald McDonald, or Colonel Donald McDonald, even when we don't, his character name is not introduced at this point. But, yeah, he has a conversation with him, and they have a little bit of back and forth with him and his henchmen, and, and basically the, the cousin is saying that uh, he could beat them up if he if he wants to. And that's when his trousers fall again. But not before he makes this, like, a random AIDS gag. And I was like, yeah, yes, okay, right. this is the early 90s, I guess. Like, this is not... Ah, <laughs> oh, dear. Ah, oh, dear. There's some things in this movie that have aged very badly. Well, and, and even that, right? Because this is 93. I mean, it was only a couple years later that, that Noel Gallagher made uh, uh that a, a joke i mean it was his, his was a little bit harsher than than yeah. this one but yeah. he still made it and i mean it, you know this was kind of before i mean i i to, to some extent i think you know we don't we didn't have the term cancel culture at that time but you know it, it to some extent it was a huge controversy that he really had to walk back and you know it was it was potentially damaging to their their career as they were sort of taking off so so even then you know thinking about it being that long ago you know again i think that might have been a cultural thing that maybe like westerners we sort of held that kind of joke more sacred that we wouldn't necessarily make that where maybe in 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 asia they just thought you know and, and i think the other thing too when i first watched this i watched the dubbed version i don't remember if that joke was in the dubbed version i did the subtitle there's version some versions time. i did read in the kind of trivia and stuff like that there is some versions of the film where that that gag has been excised so that i think some of the dubbed versions don't have that gag i, I watched it with the the Cantonese version with subtitles, so which had it in, but like, uh, yeah, so I don't think every version of it has that gag in because, like, um, obviously they just considered it not in good taste, I guess, <laughs> which yeah. it is. <laughs> well, yeah, because I didn't remember it when I watched the because I watched the dub version the first time and I didn't sure. remember the joke, and then I watched the Cantonese this time with the the subtitles and saw it, and I was like. I don't think that I, I feel like I would have caught that the first time because um, it because it, it definitely like it, it hits you like you, you kind of, you know, it kind of hurts the sensibilities, especially the modern 2020 sensibilities. Oh, it is. It is one of those funny experiences of like you watch the dub version and you, you always think like, oh, it's so weird seeing all these um, Asian actors dumped into kind of weird English voices. But then I kind of had the reverse experience watching the Cantonese version where watching Richard Norton and Gary Daniels dubbed into Cantonese. And I was like, this is equally weird. Right. Well, because then what happens is they get dubbed again, I think, when it comes to the English dub version. Because I know there was, there's one, was it the Magic Crystal where Richard Norton, I think he has like an, an Italian accent or a Latin American accent. I can't remember the Spanish accent. Whoever does the voice is just completely, it, it's hilarious. But, but also Cynthia Rothrock, it's always like a different voice from her. Yeah, that's song, true. That's true. They often do get dubbed again when it's uh, when it's into, re-dubbed into English. Yeah. 
yeah yeah so you're often not hearing their voice anyway yeah that yeah. is true you know because we talked a little bit about him um and you know you are the dtv connoisseur and he is a big dtv tv star what did you think of gary daniel's glorious introduction in this movie where he's just working out in his underwear flexing his <laughs> flexing his abs showing off <laughs> showing off his rippling biceps <laughs> that had to be a, a, a kind of a take on on the van damme thing right i think i yeah. felt like that there was because so that for me right that's the kind of humor or the hamming it up that i really like in a movie like this you know it's funny to like see just how goofy it is and and it's like you mentioned that he was in his underwear only i think that was supposed to be his bathing suit because that's all he's wearing when he goes down to the pool later um that's true yeah which is just completely absurd you know so he must have just looked at that and just been like okay i'm just you know i'm in this for this reason you know hopefully at some point i could do my martial arts and, and that kind of thing but um because uh yeah they kind of again maybe like the whole it's going too far like it was funny enough in that one opening sequence but then like the, the fact that he's wearing the same thing when he goes down to the pool yeah it was you know, of all the you know gary daniels is one out of the dtv stars who's done all kinds of different roles he was in like a lifetime you know, drama movie here. Um, he did that a dance movie, Dance and It's On. You know, he didn't do any dancing in it, but he played like the the father of one of the dancers. So he does all kinds of weird things anyway. And I think when he was first starting out, these were the kind of roles a lot of times that he could get because it was just like, you know, this 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 pretty blonde guy um, who who worked out, who very, you know, could do like splits and things like that. And I think it was good because it got him roles, but then I think it, it he he found out maybe after the fact that it was then difficult for him to get taken more seriously as a lead in, in action movies. I, I'm like you, you know, like there is certain scenes in the movie that have like a goofiness that like hit my sweet spot. And this was one of them, his introduction of just him training in his swimwear, it, you know, like, <laughs> and we just get lots of like, yeah, lots of shots of his of his abs and his, his biceps and I'm doing the splits. That's it's the kind of thing that I was like, oh, this is entertaining. Yeah, I'm on board for this. Yes. Yeah, I really think they're making fun of Van Damme there, which when you think of it in that sense, right, it's really kind of hilarious that it's almost like this guy who's like full of himself that he just wants to see himself, you know, in the, you know, not wearing a lot of clothes and just showing off that, you know, how he looks. It, it's one of those jokes that really hit, I think, or that was really clever at, in this movie. And I think we do get a lot more fun once we, we get onto the cruise ship. And I think like, yeah, some of that goofiness does work much better. I think that the chase that uh, Jackie has on the boat where the, the staff are chasing him and he's got, he's got the table in front of him that he's like, he's, because the staff have been told not to disturb the guests and not to kind of destroy anything, but also capture Sir Jackie. We're we're just going to call him Jackie, <laughs> I think, yeah, yeah. and try and capture Jackie. I, I think that really worked for that sequence. Yeah, yeah, it 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 definitely I think spelled like when when he what you want I think when you get Jackie Chan on a cruise ship like that is you want sort of action and fun right away. And I think, again, you know, we talked about that padding at the beginning. This was another kind of action sequence that had it been early in the movie kind of would get you, you know, engaged right away. Yeah, for sure. And I think it, it's unfortunate that we kind of get it kind of mixed in between. The, this film does, I mean, do you remember any of the characters' names? Because this film does a really bad job of introducing <laughs> 
characters who are not her central hero, Rio, or the, the villain. Most of the characters, like basically, we've got Rion as assistant, and then most of the other characters, including the characters that kind of help him out, like, get really rough introductions. You kind of don't know who they are, don't know what their background is, don't really know anything about them other than there's one guy who's a croupier who's also maybe a secret agent and there's also a woman who is a secret agent of some sort but we don't know why and we don't know why she's brought a friend along who is possibly (laughs) in witness protection or something question mark right so so that was the one act one character name i knew was her not not the the friend but the the one that could be an agent of some sort her her character name i think was uh, seiko Seiko, um, yes. Yeah, because because uh, uh, Ching Mai Yao, um, I don't know if I'm saying it correctly, or Ching Mai Yao, she she did that. Was it the Naked Killer series? In, yes, in Hong Kong, which right the there. director yeah. of this film uh, wrote and produced. Yeah. Yeah. So so I recognized her, but you're right. Like like for example, there's the guy with the cards who, again, like we don't know who. What is he? He's like playing cards at the table. And but then he can also throw the cards and he's like a martial artist and he's a really cool character. But you're right. Like, I don't remember who he was, what his, he didn't have a name. I mean, fortunately, as I looked through the IMDb credits that uh, Psycho, the, the other character was just listed as Psycho's friend, which helped. But yeah, there's a sense of like, are they there to sort of rip off rich businessmen on the cruise and sort of like, you know, sort of use their, their feminine wiles to dupe them into giving them the money? Or are they there to investigate? Have they gotten a tip that there's this terrorist attack coming? Yeah, you don't really know why why they're there. Um, and like you said, who they are. Psycho and her friend, I was able to keep them straight. I think they did a good job, at least with the card guy, by constantly having him pull out cards that he could use to throw it at, at people. So I could That's keep true. his character straight. But beyond that, it was... Yeah, I mean, you had um, the, the, the girl that he's supposed to be searching for. You know, I can't remember what her character name was. It's was listed she, as Shizuko. Okay, right. So Kumiko. Yeah, so, so she was in it. I mean... So yeah, it, it, you, you're right. It was just, there was a lot going on. There were a lot of people and um, a lot of moving parts. And and I guess maybe had you know like if, maybe they were all celebrities in in Hong Kong that maybe everybody would recognize. Maybe it's supposed to be like the disaster film, right? Where like all the all the celebrities mm-hmm. like when we watch the you know the Poseidon Adventure or something like that, we know all the names. And maybe that's what it was more supposed to be, but. It, it didn't feel that obvious. No, it, it didn't. And, and like, yeah, I guess I kind of only picked up the names kind of towards the end. It is mentioned later on that the card guy's name is Kotetsu. I, I hope that's I pronounced that right. And um, yeah, rather weirdly, the girl is listed as Shizuko on IMDb. But the Cantonese version I watched in the subtitles, it calls her Kyoko throughout the film. So I'm right. I'm rather confused <laughs> as to what that character's name is. Right, right, exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and, and and I think the problem too, right, was that like the movie almost forgets about her, right? That there's points where with these characters, because we we kind of lose them and come back, and then there was like the two like DJs that were kind of goofy characters. That was like, which. The thing with the DJs being goofy characters is that it felt like we already had the cousin who was a goofy character. But yes, then we, sure. it, it felt like we, they were extraneous uh, comic relief. Uh, yeah. yeah, yeah. Which you wonder because you know we don't know the full extent of the history of this this 
shooting was was there something that happened with the cousin character like was he doing another movie or something they they couldn't use him so they had to bring these djs in to fill the same role and then they could bring the cousin back when they needed to or i you know you never know i guess and their characters i i read on imdb that their characters are dj soft and dj hard which i feel <laughs> is like a sex joke but maybe not <laughs> right right i think i think so too i think because because there is a lot of that going on in this that that it is like a lot of characters that are are groping women you know a lot of getting handsy a lot of um being having their their advances being rebuffed a lot of that kind of thing and and even Jackie Chen it it happens a lot with his character and so yeah i guess that was there, that was maybe part of the the sexual humor that was going on in the movie yeah because, like you say, there is a lot of that, and a lot of that. Uh, I mean, again, it's it's made in a different time. A lot of that is just not aged well. You know, sex comedies often don't wage well. Right. Uh, but yeah, and a lot of those gags just kind of fell flat for me. And some of them were just so stupid. Like, <laughs> Psycho's friend, who is literally, like you say, in the IMDb credits and in the credits in the film, is just listed as psycho's friend psycho's friend it's her main characteristic is that she is a slender woman who uh, is is large chested shall we say uh, and uh, apparently can't keep her balance because of this now if we're being extra super generous to the film we could say that this is some sort of commentary on how comic book characters are drawn but i don't think that is the case <laughs> No, because I think, too, I guess with manga, that's probably something different. But I know um, in American comics, at least with kind of like the, the explosion that they had of sort of the artist-driven scene in the, in the late 80s, early 90s, that was like just starting to be a thing with guys like, like Rob Liefeld, you know, drawing these like X, X-Men characters or Jim Lee drawing these X-Men characters that were like well endowed in that sense. It was kind of a new thing. So I, I, mm -hmm. I yeah, I... I almost think the other thing too I know from Hong Kong films that I've watched is that they they'll take a woman role that the woman herself seems seems pretty and and you know not unattractive in any way but they'll they'll kind of sell her to us as unattractive or they'll sell us to sell her to us as goofy and she's just sort of like the butt of a lot of the jokes that happen in the movie and I think that's what Seiko's friend was like I mean there's a point where she like gets attacked and like they, she gets punched in the stomach multiple times by one of the baddies and 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 it's like for us in the western movie like we wouldn't really find that funny to see a woman getting punched in the stomach but I guess it was being played for laughs and like physical comedy in this and I've seen that come up with other Hong Kong movies where there's that character that like you know it's not, not a kind of character that we would have in a western movie but they they use that that female character who's like the butt of jokes a lot in um uh, in these hong kong films yeah that's 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 true and the other film that we covered on the podcast last january we're really trying to sell this um, <laughs> if we if we have any lasting if this podcast has any lasting legacy and that's this is this is what we're going to be but yeah one of the movies we covered was was mr nice guy which had similarly a number of problematic uh, kind of sexist things going on and also richard norton was also the villain in that movie yeah mr nice guy right that one i think am i right that that oh no i was thinking that was released theatrically here in the u.s but it wasn't i think it was just on video but it was sort of yeah trying to to capture the the popularity that he had gotten in the 90s here in the u.s so it was one of those ones that like you could get on dvd or vhs but it wasn't released here i think that's right because mr nice guy came out the 
the year before Russia. And yeah. I, I think, you know, there was there was certain 90s Jackie Chan movies that were kind of released on DVD and VHS. Well, more VHS at that time, I guess. Yeah, both in like the UK and America and stuff like that. When, when you know, Jackie Chan in that kind of late 90s period became much more popular in the West, even though he'd been obviously popular in 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 hong kong and in a number of asian countries since like the late 70s or whatever yeah actually yeah looking at imdb they're saying it actually was released theatrically in the u.s so i think that's what it was was i think they just took the golden harvest film and um put it you know in in the theaters and just wanted to see you know how it did and it looks like it made about 12 million dollars which for for that time isn't bad for the, yeah. the late nineties for, especially for a movie like that. You know, I don't know what it said. It's, it's budget was, um, they don't, yeah, it's interesting. You, you mentioned that. I don't know if they ever list the budget for the, these golden harvest films. I, I, yeah, I don't think so. It's much more difficult to find out what the budget of a Hong Kong movie is, as opposed yeah. to like an American movie, you know? And again, I, I have to say there is a kind of leeriness to, to certain f- films. Not, not all Hong Kong movies. I've seen a lot of Hong Kong action movies that don't have this kind of leeriness. But like with Mr. Nice Guy, as much as I do enjoy, I was a fan of martial law and I do enjoy Sammo Hung. And I, I think Sammo Hung is a, is a great martial artist and, and kind of comic actor and all, all that. It, most Sammo Hung movies that I've seen that he's directed do have like a kind of sleazy quality to them that is a little uncomfortable. <laughs> yeah, no, that's a good point. Yeah. Yeah. And <laughs> it and it almost feels like with with the Hong Kong movies that they were maybe, I don't know, 10 years is is too extreme, but they were they were a bit behind where Western movies were in terms of like how they were treating those movies. And maybe maybe even more than 10 years. It's kind of Thinking about like movies from the seventies having those kinds of jokes, even there maybe maybe not so much. So yeah, and I think you're right that the Sammo Hung in particular because he never did any of that with his martial law show. So it must have been one no. of those things like once he came here, they were like, "No, you can't do that over here." It doesn't. Yeah, it doesn't. It doesn't fly and stuff like that. But yeah, yeah it's certainly if you see like the like the Lucky Star films or anything like that, there's. <laughs> Definitely some stuff. But yeah, and I, again, like that's kind of the kind of least enjoyable parts of this this movie. Like when we get more of like this the kind of sex gags and the sleaziness and the and the kind of and just some of the the weirdness, like there's that pool scene where, where Jackie's really starving. So he's kind of sleazing on the woman, but is imagining like her her, her her arms is you know you know like her arms and legs is like you know fried chicken and her, her breast is hamburgers and stuff like that and you're just like okay movie this is kind of getting weird now <laughs> right exactly and it was it was also that you know Seiko's friend character that, that that was happening to so again it's like that idea that for whatever reason they don't want to make her character be like someone that the main characters would find sexually appealing so instead it's that you know like even though she she's well endowed right it's the boobs are turning into cheeseburgers for jackie chan because like yeah it's almost like they sell this character as being not as attractive even though she seemed like she was equally attractive to the, the friend that i'm um, just to say co but uh, yeah something that i see in these hong kong movies that just uh, i think the inspector wears skirts there's a character like that who was just sort of like the butt of all the jokes and that that was their part in the movie like you say she does seem to be a, a butt of the, a lot of the jokes and there are several scenes throughout the movie where she's just kind of doing pratfalls and 
like you mentioned, you you kind of referenced the scene where she gets kind of beaten up, which is kind of yes, that whole sequence is kind of just really feels really awkward and it feels really kind of kind of tough to watch because then straight after that, because basically she goes to try and seduce a henchman and the henchman like beats her up and then the cousin tries to beat up the henchman, but then kind of does the kind of full seduction that she was doing before and then the guy falls for it and it's just like there is an awkward homophobia to it as well as like the awkwardness of of just seeing her beaten up for laughs right right because they had already made that 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 the age joke too earlier on so yeah so you're kind of still working in that vein as well again i'm i'm yeah and and again that joke doesn't hit as bad it doesn't come off as bad with when the, the 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 dubbed versions remove the 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 bad age joke as well. I, I guess like trying trying to kind of segue back to like maybe some some of the some of the better things in the movie. We have two fights between Jackie Chan and Gary Daniels. The second of which is probably the most memorable thing in this film. But the first of which is actually also pretty good as well. It is awkwardly preceded by what you probably call a comedic attempted rape, which is awkward, but moving away from that, the fight itself in the bedroom between between Rio and, and Gary Daniels' character, well, I guess we'll just call him Jack and Gary. Like, yeah, that's that's pretty good fight they have in the round one of their, their fight. Yeah, it was what I wanted when I saw Gary Daniels, you know, when I saw that he was in the film and it was a Jackie Chan movie. That was that was definitely what what I wanted to see from that fight. And I think the other piece there, you talk about the other, like awkward, you know, the played for laughs, attempted rape scene. That reminded me of like really bad, like love boat gags where it'd be like, you know, some older actor like red buttons like chasing around like the 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 tour director the ship tour director like chasing her around the room and it's like oh this this handsy old man he just he just can't get out and i'm like my wife and i'll sometimes watch shows like the the love boat now and be like how was that ever played for last but you know in the 70s everybody thought it was funny and i guess it's kind of maybe again mm-hmm. if they're behind on on sort of our trends yeah and and i mean to some extent it helped in making gary daniels's character sinister but also the fact that like it was it was definitely awkward. But then they kind of like give us a palate cleanser with that fight scene, which I thought was good. Absolutely, and I I think both of them are are working on high gear in in that fight scene. And then even after that fight, where the rest of the terrorists come in and they get captured by Richard Norton, and Jackie's got his hands up, but he's still occasionally punching uh, Gary in the face and stuff. I, I thought that was really funny. That tickled me. Yeah, it, I mean, it definitely showed like the level of quality that of of Gary Daniels that he could, you know, be at home in a in a fight like this with with Jackie Chan and, and, you know, looking at Daniels's career too. I mean, this is really early on. I mean, he's been doing some stuff to that point, but you know, nothing really of this level, you know, I mean, I guess there, there was a few, but a lot of them are really small roles that he's in or a, a small parts or something like that. And so, you know, this was probably a really big test for him. And the fact that he showed up and did it, I thought was, was, was really good. And like you said, the way that they kind of did it creatively where, where like, you know, that the terrorists come in and he's still like, Jackie's still gonna say, you know, he does a lot of that in the film. I think he does a lot of the kind of comedic fighting that I, I really enjoyed. I think most of the big kind of set piece fight scenes in the movie 
are pretty good. Like the kind of next big set piece fight in the movie is when Jackie takes on the two. We 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 yeah, they don't have names. They're just like two <laughs> tall henchmen. And then Game of Death is playing on, on the cinema screen. So you have this fight on the cinema screen of Bruce Lee versus Kareem Abdul-Jabbar and from Game of Death. And then he's learning from Game of Death how to deal with these guys. And I, I thought that was a uh, pretty creative fight scene. Yeah, I really enjoyed that. And I thought they did, again, they did a lot of really good fun stuff with that scene. And I think kind of harkening back to your point about like, you know, action movies that can have fun in, in, in the right way. This this definitely was that, to have like a send-up to an iconic Bruce Lee fight scene with Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, but then do it with Jackie Chen's like trademark, like both martial arts skill, but then also humor. Yeah, it, it made for a really fun scene. And the way they use the space as well with, the, with the, the movie theater, I thought was great too. And I do love fight scenes like that. They're a bit comedic. And also, it's just one of those things where it seems like the characters overcoming impossible odds. Like, because at first, the henchmen are just totally beating him up and, like, sending him <laughs> flying across the room. He's got, like, a giant footprint on his on his chest. And, like, he, he doesn't know how to deal with it at first. But then he sees certain moves in the movies and they're like, oh, yeah, right. If I just, like, get at his ankle and do this. And it's, oh, yeah, it's just a really fun uh, scene to watch. And, and one of the Probably one of the best scenes in the film. Yeah, it definitely was one of the ones that made the movie for me, I think. It just, you know, I mean, of course, you, you know, you get the Gary Daniels fight scene with him as well. And so there's, there's, there's these good moments there that kind of make you feel like, okay, yeah, you're, you're in the right place, even if there's some of the, the jokes maybe aren't landing like they should. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think like the thing with the jokes is it, it comes back to so many of the jokes are, are so kind of leering. And yeah. like, the, you know, because they feel kind of awkward, because even after that scene, it turns out that Jackie has like a microcomputer that can read fingerprints. <laughs> and he, he he's reading fingerprints off the different things. And Shizuku or possibly Kyoko, he reads fingerprints off the back of her dress on the on the backside of her dress and it turns out it is his own fingerprints and <laughs> yeah <laughs> and i looked into the actress who who plays who plays her and yeah she would have been 18 at the time which makes right. it feel <laughs> right 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 because what would jackie chen have been he's he was born in in the mid 50s so he, yeah, he was born in like, 1954 so this film was like filmed in 1992 so he would have been 38, 38. 38. Yes, he would have yeah. been 30. He would have been 38 at the time and she would have been 18 when it was filmed. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So, yeah. And, and you're right. It, it is like, again, like those kinds of jokes, like you said, like it's like it's it, it's funny in a way, like you get where they're going with the humor. But then at the same time, and I mean, you know, that, you know, there is there doesn't seem to be a, like an issue with the two of them being a, a, a potentially being a couple either. Like, and maybe, maybe Jackie Chan's character was supposed to be younger. Maybe that was part of it. I guess so. But yeah, no, like, yes, yeah, so it's never mentioned like, because nobody's ever like, Oh, that's kind of weird that you're kind of <laughs> hitting on this, this young girl, the teenager, late teenager, who's like 20 years younger than you. But yeah, no, that's, that's never mentioned even like just after that. Cause it's, it's really weird. Cause I really go back and forth in this film. Cause like some of the comedy and some of the humor really does work like there's a gag straight after with the microcomputer where he's reading the fingerprints off a doorknob 
And then a henchman opens the door and he's reading the fingerprints off somebody's actual fingers. And then he does the thing where he kind of just slowly looks up and he's like, oh shit, there's a henchman. Gags like that totally work for me. Yeah. Yeah. And, and Jackie Chen does those gags better than anybody, I think. And so they, so they just really work with him when he when you see it. Because I think there's was kind of a funny element to it where it's almost like a Three Stooges kind of thing where he sees it. But then the way he responds and he sort of like gets into this like defensive martial arts mode where he's trying to protect himself after the fact, uh, it, it all works so well with him. He is a great comedic actor. And obviously he's mentioned before that, you know, his great heroes are the likes of Buster Keaton and Charlie Chaplin and, and things like that. And the kind of silent comedy greats. And he really, he is like a mixture of, he is Bruce Lee mixed with the uh, cross with Buster Keaton, you know, and he manages to pull that off really well in a lot of his films. And even here, where not everything works, particularly a lot of the sexual humor, some of the, a lot of the physical gags still really do fly. Yeah, well, that's, you know, Buster Keaton might be a good, a good comp too, because, you know, his movies, his silent movies, there's some of those that I watch where there's things in them like, like, you know, like blackface and things like that, where you're just like, oh, this isn't, you know, this doesn't play well. It doesn't work well. But the films themselves overall, like what Buster Keaton's doing in the movie, it does work. Like it's, it's like, it's sort of timeless. And, and that, you know, I think, I think like, like good stunt work, whether it's in a comedic way or, or in an action way is, is always going to be impressive. And like, you know, when the jokes land, when they, when they work in that sense, uh, yeah, it's, it's always going to work. And so maybe that's a, this movie is kind of a good comp for some of those. So, uh, yeah, you know, you're talking about Buster Keating and talking about good stunt work and awkward blackface. That's a good segue onto probably the most memorable scene in this movie. The Street Fighter 2 fight scene between Jackie and Gary Daniels. Gary Daniels playing Ken. Jackie playing, in this movie, is called E Hond instead of E Honda. I, I did find out fun fact. Apparently, they did not call him E Honda because Honda is obviously a make of car. And oh. uh, Jackie Chan had a contract with Mitsubishi at the time, so they didn't want <laughs> Honda in the movie. <laughs> okay, that makes sense. I I, I, I wondered about that because everybody else seemed to be in the film, and and they were using the music and everything. Yep. <laughs> apparently that's why okay that makes sense now <laughs> so yes and they they they, they have a, a a fight scene and obviously the the awkward blackface comes in whereas it was it's brown face because one of the i i guess because there's a mixture of like hong kong japanese and taiwanese actors so i'm i'm not sure i think it's one of the hong kong actors one of the djs i think he's a one of the yeah. hong kong actors is like browned up as dal seem which is yeah. Uh, it's not good <laughs> right right yeah and and it's interesting because i you know I, I i you know i don't know how that like i know like as a, if, as, if a white actor did that that would just be you know it'd be, it'd be horrible i wonder like yeah with with you know like with asian actors because i know that there's you know obviously there is sort of that i don't know if it's animosity if it's, is the right term definitely you know, uh, rivalry sort of between uh, China and India about, you know, or, or um, Indian subcontinent, I think, in certain things. And so, yeah, I wonder that if this was screened in India, how, how that would how that would have been taken. Yeah, I, I'm not I'm not sure. It And it's kind of funny as well, because like 
it seems like you know you're kind of talking about like the difference between east and west and and how things some some things wouldn't fly and some things would fly and the weird thing about this kind of thing is like even thinking of like movies of the time i don't think this sort of thing would fly in movies however like in the west both in america and in the uk like this thing sort of thing still happened throughout the 90s quite frequently on like sketch comedy shows on tv like up until like the early two because i think like jimmy kimmel was like oprah in like the early 2000s (laughs) you know like (laughs) you know so up until like the early 2000s this was still relatively common yeah because it was a recent um i don't know if the if if the the trending drama on twitter made it outside the u.s but um that uh speaking of jimmy kimmel his, his former love interest sarah silverman she got into trouble because well, she, well, she had kind of she'd gotten into it with some people about uh, some of the stuff that Kanye West had said, but then people dra- dragged up uh, an image of her in blackface where she uh, tried to make the joke. She said, I, "I'm having menstrual cramps." That was the joke she tried to make, and it was just like you look at it, and it's like, "Ooh, this is like this is really rough." So yeah, you you make a great point that comedians thought they could get away with this kind of thing. I think beyond the fact, the point where movies like this did i mean i mean another example and i guess this is this is necessarily an american example but uve bull made he made like a, a parody of his own blood rain movies he made a movie called blubberella with like kind of an overweight actress playing the um it, it, uh is that blood rain is that what the character's name was uh, yeah yeah blood rain he she he made like a, an overweight overweight woman playing that role and he was making fun, there was a scene where he's making fun of the movie precious where he's playing the monique character um with with the blackface and everything and and I'm watching it and I'm like what possessed anybody to even think that like one that movie precious doesn't really have anything that's worth making fun of in it I mean, it wasn't really a funny movie but mm-hmm. two like why you know why you would do that and it's like the rest of the movie was you know it was it was, it was a lot of jokes about her being overweight they were kind of like okay I get it she's overweight she needs to eat or something like that it was like kind of that stuff but again the blackface piece I mean this was like the the late 2000s early 2010s that this movie came out and and again, this is you know German. Maybe it's a, it's a little bit different understanding of of sort of those kinds of things versus like the country you know like like the, the UK or, or the United States might might see it. But even then, I was like, wow, like I, I thought we were like well past even thinking that this is a possibly a good thing. But maybe it's different. Maybe in Europe, for example. Yeah, I I think like yeah, it it, it is it is a bit different. I think um, yes, I, we probably don't have enough time to in in this yeah. podcast to, to to go into the various different cultural quirks of, of, of different countries and their rep yeah. and their different acceptances of, of, of blackface. And, and yeah, <laughs> it's, right. um, it's yeah. generally, it's not a good thing. People will just leave it at that. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And I think for, for us, it definitely seeing it done in this film, you know, it, it, it definitely, you could, you could, it, it's similar to, to the, to the age joke. Like you, you, it, it definitely kind of hurt the sensibilities for sure. However, the fight itself yeah. is really fun, and the 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 kind of glorious wig that they give yes. Gary Daniels is <laughs> amazing. Yes. The wig, and they also darken his eyebrows as well to really make him look like the the cartoonish character that he is in the in the game. Yeah, it's 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 fun. I mean. <laughs> Well, the other thing that, that kind of struck me about it is that after Jackie Chen is is E Honda, he then is Chun, uh, Chun Li. Yeah. yeah, 
And one of the things that's interesting is for a movie that's just rife with with chauvinism, with like leering kind of creepy jokes, with a lot of handsy fellows, you know, needing to be rebuffed by women and all that kind of stuff. When it came to like the sexy Chun-Li outfit that you would expect, like, you know, that they may have made like the character, for example, who played Saiko, you know, Ching-Mi-Yao, you know, you'd think that she would be wearing it or one of the other characters. They go with Jackie Chen wearing it and say, like, no, we're not going to let you sexualize Chun-Li or Chun-Li in this. And so that was really fascinating, too, that of all the places that they would that they had been using that kind of objectification of women and sort of the leering kind of jokes. This was the one place they didn't do it. And maybe there was a commentary there throughout the movie that these characters that were being that were sexualizing the women weren't good for it. And maybe there, but I mean, maybe I'm giving the movie the benefit of the doubt too much too, but it was just an interesting thing that this was the one place they definitely didn't want to do it. Yeah, for sure. I I think that it's kind of interestingly filmed as well, because like there's certain sequences, like when he does the, the the helicopter kick and uh, when he does like certain like special street fighter combo modes, the, the film itself almost goes into a kind of arcade vision, which yeah. I, I thought was quite interesting too. Yeah. Yeah. They, they did a lot with it that I think it's almost like, you know, cause we, we think of comic, we think of video game movies, you know, being adapted, you know, to video games being adapted to movies. Whereas this took the kind of the absurdity of what happens in a video game and placed it in this, in this film environment. And, and I thought it was a really fun take on it. And like you said, the, the use of the different film to, to, to give us a different vibe or a different look at what we were seeing, I think even added to that. Yeah, I, th- I think you're, you're absolutely right. And I think as much as the, like, it's the one scene that as much as the kind of awkward brown face that is, you know, isn't good, it's the one scene where the DJ comedic relief characters actually kind of, are kind of fun and like I didn't just find them irritating. I was just like they actually kind of add a little bit to the scene of their interjection between Jackie being beat up as as uh, as E Honda or E Hond and then like emerging uh, as Chun Lee. Yeah, because that was like because the other one plays Guile. Um, yes, and you know got the hair spiked up really well and and I guess that was part of the idea is that maybe Blanco would have been too much to to do. But I think they wanted it to be like a, a similar goofy character. So that's why they went with Dalton. But it, it, the, the, the guile part of it was hilarious because he's like doing the sonic boom and all of that stuff. And I mean, they had the sounds down perfectly. So you, you could kind of feel like you're walking into an arcade and hearing the game being played, you know, with the way that the, the sounds that they were making of the characters and, and uh, when they would throw their fireballs and things like that. Yeah, I mean, like most of the movie is, is pretty good after that because we're, we're really i mean apart from the kind of scene that we've we've already broken down the kind of homophobic henchman thing there is just kind of pretty much consistent action scenes towards the end of the movie and most of them i think are are pretty good it, whether that be the the ones that involve jack himself or like there's even that hallway fight that has the the current guy kotetsu and Psycho finding a bunch of henchmen in, in the hall. And, and that's pretty good action sequence there. Yeah, yeah, that was really good. And, it, you know, the way they, they were kind of pinned down with the baddies and then he would, like, throw his cards or, like, trying to find ways to, like, sort of get out of that situation. They bring in, like, the Thai stormtroopers to, to storm the, the, the boat. It's like, like you said, it, it almost has the feel as we start getting into these, these, like you said, like the kind of consistent action 
then it starts to build up to like the the usual like blockbuster movie end that I I I enjoyed and and it was interesting too because I think with the, the 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 scene in the hallway there there is no real humor in there and you're almost like wondering is there gonna is there gonna be a joke somewhere in there when it really is more just serious of them like trying to get out of the situation where they're pinned down and the guy with the cards is getting shot at and and then that kind of thing yeah. It does feel tonally quite different from the rest of the film. And I don't know if that necessarily worked just because it felt so kind of jarring. Because we have like, once Kotetsu is shot, and then he, he kind of, you know, and he, he manages to get killed, the, the, the kind of the last guard with the help of Psycho. And then we have like this kind of emotional moment between them of like, he's kind of, half dying and then he kind of is like oh we'll, we'll meet again and I'll, I'll take you out on a date kind of thing and it's supposed to it's so it's almost supposed to be this kind of a sweet romantic moment which it kind of is but it feels very strange just how different it is from the rest of the film right because pretty much every other moment in the movie that there's a sweet romantic moment there every other time there's a sweet romantic moment there's always a punchline or there's a, the, the joke that takes us out of it right like if it's like you know jackie chen like having a moment with kaori and then a beautiful woman walks by and steals his attention you know like that's that's kind of what we expect there that doesn't really happen there and and i guess to the fact right that they they wanted i guess ha- by having him get shot in the arms it made it hard for him to throw the cards. And I guess that was the device to kind of add the the suspense layer in there. But again, like you said, tonally, it didn't quite fit as much as 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 the other parts where, you know, Jackie Chen's getting shot at, he's getting all kinds of things happening to him. There's still like a goofiness to it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, th- th- there definitely is. Because even the kind of previous thing just before the the kind of the the whole sequence and, and just um, actually just before the the second fight with with Gary, there's like He's captured and there's like a kind of he's about to be executed. And then the gang kind of rescue him from the execution. But again, this is played almost entirely for laughs. And we have Kyoko or Suzuki kind of, you know, doing a bit of gymnastics on the on the on the sails and kind of stuff. And we have the, the Seiko's friend falling over because of her boobs again. And we, you know, we have yeah, all this kind of uh, goofiness going on. So uh, yeah, it's still mainly goofy throughout the movie there's not and there's a sense as well that because there's a scene earlier on when the thieves are kind of talking amongst themselves and obviously there's been plans before that have not gone right and and richard norton's kind of like oh no but it'll go well this time so there's there's a kind of sense that throughout the movie that these are not competent villains right yeah for sure and and, and and it's like even before they even commit the crime right you've got um gary daniels and then the other long-haired baddie that's with him who are just down there trying to pick up women right that are just hitting on women and not really taking anything seriously so yeah and you can see like that they're they can be easily fooled it seems like at times and you know that there is a like you said there's almost like a comic nature to it but yet at the same time right they carry off this plan to start with that is very much like the usual hostage taking plan that you see in any other movie that's carried out by a sophisticated group of baddies yeah that's that's true it is quite fun as well that Richard Norton, apparently I read again, I was kind of reading into the kind of background of the movie. The gun that Richard Norton has is the Robocop gun, which I think <laughs> is quite entertaining. Yeah, because speaking of movies that pulled off the the mix, right, of comedy and, and action well, 
uh, RoboCop was like probably the best, but you know, actually the combination of comedy action and social commentary that that whole thing just really worked there. So yeah, it's it's kind of fitting that that would be the gun that he would have in this for sure. Yes, that that is true. I, RoboCop is one of the you know we we've already mentioned Commando. RoboCop is another one that's kind of top tier absurdist action. You know, you've got you got these things. Um, you know, like Hard Boils, a good other one. But a lot of John Woo movies face off, and also things like Con Air. These are like the you know top tier absurdist action films <laughs> right well and the funny thing about robocop here in america i don't know if it was the same in the uk where they edited the movie to get it like under i guess nc-17 or x or something like that and in editing the movie they actually made it less funny like they're you know the scene where um the big new model robot uh shoots mm -hmm. the, the the poor businessman you know in in the, in the, the edited version, like you, you just kind of see a little bit of him being shot. It's kind of a more sinister thing. Whereas when you watch it unedited and you see all the blood and everything, it looks really absurd. And there's really no, um, you know, it's not like a scary thing in that sense. You, you can really yeah. see the goofiness that's going on there. And so that, that's an, in, you know, RoboCop was an interesting one in that sense that because the, you know, the Motion Picture in, uh, Association and trying to make it, give it a better rating, they, with the editing they did to it, they actually took some of the humor out of it. And when you watch the, the uncut version, it's completely, you know, it's every bit that sort of absurdist piece, but also in a way that's like the commentary is just so fantastic. Yeah, the kind of satire throughout the Robocop is, is really good. Uh, like Robocop is obviously just an amazing action film and one of one of Verhoeven's best. And But I, I think that his, uh, you know, I generally love his trilogy of absurdist action films, the like Robocop Total Recall and Starship Troopers, they're, they're all gems. Yeah, yeah, and it, it is, I never saw the remake of Total Recall. I would be curious to kind of know how that goes because it, part of what made that movie work was, again, the absurdist piece of it. Yeah, the reason I never watched that remake is because it seemed like, from what I heard about it, it was much less humorous than, yeah. than the original Total Recall. And it's, you know... It didn't have that kind of same absurdist satire. It sounded like it was more of a straightforward sci-fi action movie, which I was like, yeah, I don't know. I don't know if I want that. <laughs> no, exactly. I think, I, you know, that's, I think this, that's one of those ones. I, yeah, I think just in general, Schwarzenegger, I think he doesn't get enough credit for being, you know, the, the, the comedic tongue-in-cheek aspect of him being able to play those roles so well, but it, you know, yeah, you're right. Like trying to remake that as a serious movie just sort of loses a good chunk of what what made it so great. Absolutely, because that's like the real spirit of the movie, the real the, the real heart of the movie. The the yeah. kind of the humor and the satire and and like Verhoeven playing with the kind of themes that he, he loves to play with. But back to this movie, where I I guess we're nearly. At the end of the film, we get we get a flurry. Oh yes, uh, the, something that we should mention is out of nowhere there is an elite police force <laughs> called the Taiwanese Thunder Team, who we, as the audience, I think, are supposed to join the dots that Seiko called. Right? Question mark. <laughs> right, 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 right. Yeah, exactly. Was it Seiko or was it was it Kyoko? I, somebody. Somebody called them, and you're right. It's just sort of like, oh, yeah, here they are um, with their helicopters landing on the ship. And it's interesting because 
they turn the tide to some extent, but then the film mitigates their ability to turn the tide to make sure that Jackie Chan still has that that ending fight scene with Richard Norton. Yes, that's right, because Richard Norton is pretty much the last man standing. So the Taiwanese Thunder Team, who are a terrifying unit, who wear steel masks for some reason. <laughs> I don't know why they were issued with them. But yeah, they managed to kill pretty much all of the henchmen. But then because Richard Norton's men have placed bombs throughout the ship, and Richard Norton has a control to control these bombs. Like we basically have like a montage of sequences where the Taiwanese Thunder Team kill all the henchmen and then kill a unit of henchmen and then get blown up by one of Richard Norton's bombs. And then we, yeah, we just get a couple of these sequences of, of kind of the same thing. Henchmen mown down pretty easily, and then Thunder Team blown up. Yeah. And and then it segues into a nice action sequence with Jackie Chen, where he's in these these rooms that are getting blown up by Richard Norton. And he's got to like dodge them, right? He's got to sort of run out. And and when you think about the fact that this is probably being being done in in you know in reality, right? That he's he's really running out of these rooms and they're blowing them up after he runs out of them. Uh, it, it sort of adds that level of danger that Hong Kong movies have that you don't usually get from Western films. That is true. I think that. It is interesting watching films from this period because, like, when we covered um, Supercop on the podcast, we talked about this as well, where there there was obviously a period in Hong Kong cinema. I think it's a bit different now, but particularly throughout the 70s, 80s, and 90s, health and safety basically did not exist in, in, the, in the Hong Kong film industry. And so you get all this just totally mental stunt work which is amazing to watch but you can kind of see why they don't really do it anymore what i love about it too is that they do they put these actors through the ringer and then what they do is in the credits they show you all the times that they were almost killed and uh, i remember watching an inspector wears skirts where they did this like routine where they were running and through this obstacle course and I guess the leader trying to really give them the impetus to really run through this obstacle course sets the ground on fire. So it's like sort of like the flames are kind of catching up to them if they don't run fast enough. And it shows all the times it didn't work and they had to like put their feet out and everything like like suddenly, Jeez. you know, and, and it is amazing. Like like you said, like that they they almost sort of celebrate this kind of thing. And and I mean, to to be fair, I think the actors that come through, especially like, you know, I mean, Norton and, and Rothrock also talk about that being like a a great experience for them but yeah it was just you know like let's just you know yeah it, it sort of put these 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 actors through the ringer and, and hope they end up okay so that just kind of leaves us with like the the final fight now norton is pretty good in this film like i've i've seen him better he, he's he's good at playing a kind of maniacal villain like i do th this is one of the things that you often get in hong kong action movies that i do enjoy that is over the top that some people don't really like but like villains who are just who are just kind of pure comic book villains who after they do every evil act they kind of let out a kind of big evil life laugh of <laughs> you know something like that i enjoy all that shit and richard norton's pretty good at it i think he throughout the movie he's a bit underused but in this final fight sequence i think it he really he really comes into his own and there's it's the, the various different stages of this fight sequence that i think are really done well it's interesting because he plays villains a lot in dtv movies but 
those villains don't tend to be as over the top and they tend to also be more like like just sort of brutally sinister which isn't as much fun i think for him i got the sense in watching him in this that he really relished being able to play this baddie he seemed to be having a lot of fun with it i, I think like his, his his highlights in the movie is like particularly when in the middle of the movie when he's doing the card game and yeah. he's just like <laughs> shooting people and laughing and and like yeah. And, you know. <laughs> right yeah yeah because again it's like that's the kind of thing that's kind of like you said kind of more in like the robocop vein of humor where it's like it's really dark humor but it's being played up so like like over the top where it's like you know like like it's like if you lose at the card game you get killed and of course you know that the house almost always wins in card games at the casino so it's like you're really you know you're, you're really in for it and it's like you know yes these poor guys are getting murdered there and so that's not so funny but it was kind of like it it, it was kind of that kind of that that element of being played for less and i think norton leaned into it so well that it it was it was sinister on the one hand, but and it added a sense of danger to the movie in the, in the proceedings. But at the same time, like you said, it was that over the top baddie that was so much fun. And I think I was wrong to say that like it's not that Richard Norton is underpowered at any time. It's just yeah. I think he's just kind of underutilized because, right. like we yeah. kind of discussed, there's so many moving parts, and often you know we've got like Seiko and her friends doing their thing. We've got Kiori doing her thing. We've got Kyoko doing her her own thing, getting captured and stuff like that. And then like then she meets up with Rayo, and uh, you know it's like we're and then we've got like goofy stuff with the cousin, and we're following the DJs sometimes. And so it's it's kind of very kind of all thinly spread. So he's kind of underutilized throughout the movie. We we kind of don't get enough of just like kind of straight up. The, the villain doing doing this thing. And even with the kind of Gary Daniels character, you know, I, I think we, we could have had like more interaction between the kind of Richard Norton character and the Gary Daniels character. They could have been like more like a like a double team like Tommy Lee Jones and Gary Busey and in, in under siege kind of thing, kind of roughing off each other. Yeah, I think that might be the best comp for what would have worked here. Cause I was thinking Die Hard, but Die Hard was more just Rickman but we still got a lot of Rickman, you know. I mean, there's that that really great scene with the guy who uh, is like the the yuppie or whatever, who's like talking about how he could deliver John McClane and and he ends up shooting him, you know. But um, yeah, you know, th there's that kind of stuff. And I think you're right. Like that's one of the things about, especially I think Norton in in particular, but I think Daniels as well, that we lose them for such long periods. And when you think about it, right, like when we have like, for example, um, you know, Seiko and um, you know, the guy who throws the cards and all of them. A lot of times they're in just like these hallway spaces interacting with faceless baddies. Like they yeah. aren't interacting with Daniels or Norton or any of them. So anytime we get those scenes, we're getting taken away from really kind of from everybody. We're not, you know, we have no Jackie Chan in those scenes and we have no Norton or Daniels. And so, yeah, those are areas where I think we could have used, you know, I think if it had this been on a smaller scale with fewer characters, we probably would have gotten more uh, Daniels and Norton. Yeah. And I think like it might have, it might have worked better if, if we just kind of streamlined it down, if it was mainly just we have we have Jackie Chan's character, we have Kiori's assistant, we have the the girl who you know her father wants back, and then we have a little bit of a kind of even though with the age difference, maybe a little bit creepy, but like we have a little bit of a love triangle with them, and they're mainly together, 
and then we have scenes with like the villains and it's just the two villains and then we didn't have all these like the cousin and the djs and and all of this and all these kind of extra characters that we don't really need then yeah it might have worked a bit better yeah yeah for sure i mean it could have even been that like i mean I, you know i know the whole point with kaori's character She's trying to like get away from Jackie Chan because she's upset with the cruise. But you know, even that, you know, they could have made it that they knew Kyoko was going on the cruise, and that's why they were going. You know, like they they could have done some pieces to sort of trim some of the characters a bit. And yeah, it's it, it's interesting because it, it, it in that sense it had that feel of like the the disaster, the seventies disaster movie where there's just like too many people and, and and it's easy to lose people. You know, it's like oh. Fred Astaire's in this. Well, you know, when, how long is Fred Astaire in the movie for? He's like, you know, barely, barely in it. And so it's like, okay, you know, do we get enough Steve McQueen and, and, you know, Paul Newman or something like that in the Towering Inferno? That's kind of, I think, what happens here with Norton and Daniels, unfortunately. Yeah, and I do think that's a shame. But at least, like I say, at least Norton did get to shine in, in this final fight. And we have like kind of various stages of this final fight because First of all, Norton has like these kind of metal sticks and Jackie just has his fists. And then Jackie has like these kind of wooden weapons, kind of arm weapons that he's fighting with the sticks. And then the, the metal sticks turn into kind of whips and then he's, he's fighting with the whips. And then eventually Jackie manages to get a pole and he's fighting the metal whips with, with the pole. So it's like a kind of four stage type fight. And it, so it's really quite well done. And it's kind of, back and forth like who's winning who's who's losing and even when we know that Jackie's going to win at the end of the day there there is a real kind of back and forth there yeah and it also had a good mix we were talking about like kind of the overdoing the goofy it was a good mix of goofy and solid fight choreography that I thought worked well too that it could be played for laughs at moments and then other moments you know have some really inspired you know either like you know like him jumping over chairs and things like that yeah, I, I think there was a good mix of that, of like, because there's, there's a moment where, you know, sometimes it's just pure, serious martial arts action. And then you'll get like a little moment, like when Jackie's like blocking the different things and almost doing kind of dance moves. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, and then you've got other times where things are exploding. You know, he's jumping over tables and chairs and, you know, the, particularly the kind of final bit with the pole and stuff like that, that, that really kind of balances well. And yeah, if, if if the movie had kind of more consistently kind of played on kind of the best parts of it, like the, the best parts of it we've talked about that are absurdist, that are over the top, but managed to balance it out and it's not just pure goofiness for the sake of goofiness. Yeah, exactly. Because I think that's what we get here is that it's just... It, like you said, it's a, it's a nice balance. Um, I think even like before that, when when Jackie encounters Seiko and in, in in she's like got all these weapons on her, and he's she essentially like jumps into his arm from from a high distance. He catches her, and then he's like swinging her around so she can shoot the baddies. And it's like if we didn't have so much groping going on in the earlier scenes, it would have been kind of a unique dynamic situation where like. He's kind of making himself almost look bad to um, Kaori that, you know, but because it's been happening so much, and I guess that's part of his character, right? That that's who his character is, that he's just always very handsy and always hitting on women and stuff like that all the time. So maybe that's what it was. But that was even, even that was like a fun use of that sort of that, that construct that they'd had throughout the film. It's one of the things that actually does play quite well, even though it's like playing on, because like apparently this, I've not seen the manga, I've not read the manga, I've not seen the anime or something, but 
but apparently th- this character is like that. He's he's a bit of a perv. He's always hinting on the ladies. But it's it's playing on his perviness, but it actually is pretty pretty funny because it doesn't feel it doesn't feel objectionable. Right. <laughs> right. It, it it felt like when it was in this context where he's swinging her around to 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 shoot the baddies that it was more like putting him in a compromising position to make Kaori upset with him. Which, in that re- respect, it was actually kind of more fun. Yeah, and it's done much more playfully. I, I yeah, it, it just feels different to to a lot of the the other kind of pervy moments that that, that <laughs> happen uh, throughout the movie. So I mean, yeah, obviously Richard Norton ends up exploding himself in a, in a bank of televisions, and I want you know I want your take on this. Basically, when we have like that. That sequence straight after the final fight sequence, the villain has exploded himself. And then we get like one of the running gags throughout the movie is Jackie Chan's character has not eaten all day. And so he's he's desperately looking for food like the, the whole time throughout the entire movie. And then we get the scene between Kyoko and him. And she says, Oh, you know, what what do you want? I'll do anything you want, kind of thing. And then he says, oh, I really want like a bowl of, of wonton noodles. And then we uh, pan out from the cruise ship. And then in my head, I was like, okay, cut to credits. Yeah. However, that's not what happens, is it, Matt? <laughs> right, no, exactly. And I guess they felt like there was some, some unfinished business that they wanted to attend to, maybe in particular with Kaori and him. But yeah, it it... it it felt like it would have been the perfect place to put those. Like when you're, when you're paging, when you're zooming backwards there. And I almost wonder if that was the original plan because of the way that shot went. Yeah. It, it's very curious to me because it does feel very much of like end of movie cut to credit shot. Yeah. And it's a good, like, even though the, 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 the gags about him constantly want, wanting a meal or, or maybe a few too many it's, it's a it's a relatively decent joke and i think it's quite a good kind of joke line to kind of end on like a quippy line to end on but then yeah we get this kind of awkward scene where yoko's returned to her father because she's ran away from home or whatever and then her father basically offers to sell her off to to, to jackie chan's character and Jackie Chan basically says, "No, I'm a philanderer for life. I'm never getting married." And <laughs> and and then yeah, but Kiori kind of overhears this conversation, gets mad because for some reason Kiori is in love with with Ryo. And yeah, and then she runs away, and then he tries to catch up with her and offers her a, a rose and tries to explain that no, I turned you off with a marriage offer down. But then Seiko comes up in a car. Uh, uh, and then starts flirting with Rio, despite the fact that she showed no real romantic interest in them throughout the rest of the film. And we kind of thought that she was more romantically interested in Kotetsu. Right. But anyway, uh, that's a, a, a complete side point, I guess. Uh, and then basically Kiori hits him with a big hammer, and then we get shot back into the dream sequence, and, and that's, that's the end of the film. So it's a very strange ending. <laughs> Yeah, because because one, the dad is really creepy himself, saying like, "Boy, yeah, my daughter's not bad looking, huh?" Which is like, okay, like that's a weird thing to be saying about your daughter to Jackie Chan's character. But then, yeah, I, because I excuse me, I didn't realize that there was this piece about how 
that this seems to happen a lot to Kaori hits him with the big hammer to sort of keep him in line. That yeah. I guess they wanted to get one more scene of him getting hit in the head with the big hammer. I guess they wanted that's why they tacked all this on at the end. I got I guess so. It'd be interesting because like even though I, I you know when I, particularly when I was a kid and in my teens, I was I was interested in anime. Watched quite a lot of anime. This is not one. This is not a franchise I'm familiar with at all. So like I, I'd almost be intrigued to know what kind of fans of the franchise kind of thought of this film and and whether they thought like they really needed this call back to this regular gag that's apparently in the in the manga comics with with the big hammer. So <laughs> I'm not. Yeah. I'm not sure. Yeah, I would be curious to know overall kind of how this is. Because you know, yeah. I, I was talking recently about Mark DeCascos with screenwriter Tom Joliffe on, on, on a podcast episode. And we were talking about Double Dragon, you know, and how that was such a bad adaptation. And, you know, that, that kind of in the 90s in particular, right, that, that adaptations just weren't great. Like, you know, we had the video game movies like Double Dragon or Super Mario Brothers, you know, comic book adaptations weren't always great either. and so I wonder if if this was also a bad adaptation. We just don't know because we've only, you know, we're, we're kind of coming at it without really knowing it as well. Yeah, that that's true. I, I guess, like, I do feel like probably this wasn't something that went over well. I, I, I just feel like it's very much in the kind of 90s comic book movie mode yeah. where, like, it seems to come at it kind of from the same angle as like Hollywood comic book movies of the time of like kind of coming at it kind of from above, kind of looking down on it, kind of being like, I, you know, comic books are stupid. They're, they're for idiots. These idiots will eat up anything we give them kind of thing, which I feel (laughs) is the attitude of like a lot of comic book movies that were made in the nineties, be they like Hollywood or Hong Kong or wherever they be. Yeah, because, I mean, the, the big issue with the Double Dragon one was that, like, they were trying to market it to kids, but really the video game was something that would have been played by, by you know, mid, you know, like, teens in their, like, you know, fifth, you know their, their mid-teens. It wouldn't have been for, for young kids. So, like, trying to make it a PG movie just didn't work. Uh, I mean, this, I don't know what, what this would have, I mean, this would have probably been rated R, I think, right? And <laughs> if it was released, though, the US, maybe, maybe the, the 18 rating in the UK just because of, it's not too overtly sexual, but it's. Yeah. I guess it, it was PG thirteen. So, um, I mean, I guess maybe that that makes sense. It would have been PG thirteen because the violence wasn't as bad. I guess there's, there's no, there's not a lot of blood, yeah. and I think it, if I was to guess, I would say that probably in the UK, probably would have been released as maybe like a fifteen because yeah. like there's there's violence, there's quite a lot of violence, but there's not a lot of blood. And there's a lot of uh, sexual humor and and groping and handiness and quite scantily clad women, but there's no actual nudity and no sex either. And so no, and, no, and no sex. So I, I would yeah. guess it was maybe like a fifteen. Yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense why this would be PG thirteen as well. So like, there's a lot of innuendo, but nothing too much because. I think for, for a comic book movie at that time, I mean, I guess, you know, with us talking about Batman Returns, where they had some, some a, a lot of, you know, the, the, the Penguin was, was kind of a very, was very pervy uh, at a lot of parts of, of that movie. You know, this, this kind of humor, I guess, yeah, it, 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 
for a comic book movie, it was a little bit racier for what comic book and, and video game movies were doing at that time, but also maybe the manga itself might have targeted an older audience too at that time. I would suggest so, because from, from what I've read about the, the, the manga, the the central character, Rio, is like kind of, is, is pervy, and that's why he gets hit by, by the big bummer. So he is this kind of rakish private detective character. So... I would imagine it skewed into kind of mid-teens, maybe, or mid mid to late teens, rather than being read by like kids or anything. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. And so, yeah, and so it may not have had the identity crisis that a lot of movies in in America did. But I wonder too, like how goofy the manga was, and if maybe that was where people may not have been a fan of it. It's almost it, it could have almost been like kind of like a, a Batman send up, like you know we had in the sixties. Sure. Yeah, and I think like maybe it from what I've read, it seems like the level of goofiness is the level of goofiness that we enjoyed in the movie, not the yeah. not the extra level of goofiness that we we didn't enjoy. I, yeah. from, from from the little bits I've kind of I, I've seen and kind of like researching this episode, it seems like it's a yeah, it, it's absurd. And it's goofy, but it's not just kind of waka waka, you know, right. like, right. <laughs> right. like I mean, this I mean, movie this... is a lot of the time. <laughs> yeah, because this movie was literally using like Hanna Barbera sounds and, and, and points. And I mean, and there's even that scene where Kyoko or, or Shizuko, um, you know, she knocks the, the the other blonde, long-haired baddie, the one that's not Gary Daniels, she knocks him down from like a high perch, and he falls and when he lands on the deck, he goes through the deck and it's like that the shape of the, the body kind of going through that you see in like the, the old like Looney Tunes yeah. movies. Yeah, yeah, it's like so, a hot shots gag or something, yeah. Right, exactly, <laughs> yeah. So, so it was a lot of that kind of stuff in the movie that, yeah, you wonder, it's almost like they were pulling on different cartoon traditions beyond the manga. But that that is that is it, listener. That is that is City Hunter in its entirety. Yeah, we've maybe enticed you to watch it. We've maybe completely put you off watching it. It does. It, it's a real mixed bag. It's got some real fun bits in it. It's got some real naff bits in it. But yeah, I I think. Do you have any final thoughts? Do you want to give like a, an overall rating? Yeah, I think this is a fun movie to watch. I think especially with its, its availability on streaming. I think, you know, going into it knowing that you may have your sensibilities hurt potentially with some of the jokes, you know, kind of understanding that part of it. I think overall, despite having some of those moments, I think overall it it does what it it, it it's supposed to. Where it kind of has the, uh, the mix of fun. And and I mean, the, the Jackie Chen fight scenes with, with Gary Daniels, with Norton, and also with the two really tall guys and some of the other sequences, the action sequences are really, really good that you you want from a Hong Kong film, so I think overall it's one that that that, that I would recommend. Yeah, I, I think I'm kind of in, in the same boat. I think that there's some things that really don't work. That the soundtrack can get a bit grating at times. Certain characters are annoying, particularly like the cousin character and things like <laughs> that. You know, don't really need to have him in the movie. But yeah, the the great thing about it is that all the fight scenes. Pretty much all the fight scenes work. There's some, and there's just some really great memorable moments. The the moments that you just kind of covered there. Like I say, you know, it won't be for everyone. Some people will I detest it because of its extreme goofiness. But the toned down goofiness moments, the kind of more uh, absurd moments, do work for me. 
And yeah, there's a, a, there's enough to make it kind of watchable. But yeah, it just leaves me to thank you very much, Matt, for coming on the show and just once again tell our listeners all about the DTV Connoisseur, what you're up to, anything you want to plug, all your social medias. All right. Well, so so the main site is dtvconnoisseur.blogspot.com. That's really where you can find everything. I would say I think one of the things if you if you go to the site through mobile, you may not get all the links, but there's an ability to click at the bottom to view web version, and that will give you all the links if you need them. But you know, in terms of social, it's DTV Connoisseur on Twitter. I think it's Direct to Video Connoisseur on Facebook, and and so you know that's where I mostly post things. And then from the, the author standpoint, um, my new novel is Holtman Arms, it's available on. Amazon and uh, Amazon both as a paperback and in Kindle. It just uh, follows this character, Colvin Hall. He writes a famous romance novel series, but he writes it under a pen name. And so he's kind of tired of not getting credit for his work. And so sort of as, as the book goes on, it, the, the cracks start to show as he starts to maybe either get credit or, you know, people start to maybe find out about him and whether or not he can kind of get the toothpaste back in the tube when, when people discover who he is. I recommend all my listeners check out all of that stuff. And then just, yeah, just thank you very much again for for, for coming on the show. It's, it's good to have you on. And hopefully we can have you on again uh, sometime so, sometime later. I think we're we're booked because we're only doing monthly. I think we're booked up for this year. But like definitely if we continue, we will definitely have you back. Yeah, thank you so much. It was This was a lot of fun. And I, I, I anytime, I'd be happy to come back anytime. And if you really enjoyed the show, listener, you can hit us up on socials at all90saction. Or I think it's actually just at 90saction. And you can talk to me on, on Twitter if you want, at scottmurphy85. And yeah, rate, review, and subscribe to the show. Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, wherever you get podcasts. Five stars, please, because... The algorithm sinks for shit otherwise, so five stars, get on that. And the last thing it leaves me to say is that just join us again next month when we will be covering the film American Yakuza. Until then, though, see ya.